Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. This morning, being the last chapel and also uh, the Christmas season, uh, I thought I would bring a, a Christmas lesson. And so if you would, join me in your Bible in Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1 and studying through verse 12. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 12. Wise men still seek him. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go. Search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They opening, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Opinions concerning the identity of Jesus have always been varied and numerous from biblical times even until the present. In fact, the question that Jesus put before the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, recorded in Matthew chapter 16, still remains the question of the ages, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In his own day, if you look at the biblical record, you discover uh, that people said a number of things. For example, Herod himself believed that Jesus perhaps was John the Baptist raised from the dead. He had a guilty conscience for having murdered John uh, unwantedly. Some have said that he was Elijah, a very fiery prophet. Others said he was more like Jeremiah, a weeping prophet. And then others just simply said, well, uh, he is a prophet sent from God. Uh, today, when you look at the world scene, opinions concerning who he is continue to remain varied and diverse. In Islam, we know that he is the most important and beloved of the prophets, but he is not the son of God. In Judaism, he is simply a misguided pseudo-Messiah, of which there were many in the first century. 
And growing in recent years out of what is known as the quest for the historical Jesus, a purely human Jesus has been described as an apocalyptic prophet, a cynic philosopher, a witty sage, a charismatic healer, a social revolutionary, and the list goes on and on and on. But in my mind, all of this begs a very, very important question. In fact, it is the most important question. What does the Bible say? What does God's word say about this one that we describe as Emmanuel, God with us? Now, this morning, we could have gone to a number of those crucial Christological texts that you find in the New Testament, such as John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, or Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, or Colossians 1, 13 through 23, or Hebrews, which was read earlier, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we would find fruitful material for answering that question in all of those great passages. But you know what? I thought we might just take a very simple birth narrative that we find here in Matthew's gospel and let Matthew inform us as to who this person is, the one that is described as the Christ in verse four and described as the King of the Jews in verse two. Now, this particular account is unique to Matthew. You will not find uh, the story of the wise men in Mark, Luke, or John. And yet it is also a text that is immersed in Old Testament passages and themes like Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11, and of course, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. As we walk through these verses quickly this morning, we will see that there is mystery that still envelops this passage, but also a number of misunderstandings as well. Uh, as I told my class this morning uh, in uh, Bible exposition, uh, don't hear this message today and run back home and criticize your churches for their nativity scenes that though beautiful and wonderfully traditional are also unbiblical uh, because there are things in almost all of them that would not accurately portray what you actually find in the Bible. But what we do find in these particular verses, I believe are at least five wonderful theological truths that can warm our hearts and also bless us in our lives as we reflect upon the fact that wise men still seek him. Number one, those who are wise will honor Jesus as king. A favorite Christmas hymn that we often sing is, we three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we travel afar. Well, verses one and two of Matthew chapter two clarify for us very clearly uh, who the gifts were for and who the story really is all about. His name is Jesus. Back in chapter one, he was identified by that personal name. God will save his people in chapter one, verse one, verse 16, verse 18 and again in verse 21. But here in chapter two, a new title is added to his personal name, and that is he is called the king of the Jews. In other words, this is the one the wise men from Babylon or Persia have come to worship. And so the text tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the Great, or Herod the King, excuse me, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem. 
Bethlehem, of course, is significant in biblical history. The word literally means the house of bread. Uh, It is still there, a fertile uh, countryside area about six miles south of Jerusalem. If you go back and study the Old Testament, you uh, discover that Rachel was buried there according to Genesis chapter 48 and verse 7. Of course, the wonderful love story of the book of Ruth revolves around Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, and then later, of course, Ruth and her marriage to a man by the name of Boaz. Because David was from that particular area, it soon took on the title, the city of David. And as we will see in just a moment in our text, Micah chapter 5 promises us that God indeed would send a Messiah, he would send a shepherd king, and he would indeed come from Bethlehem. Now, the text tells us that he was born during a man by the name of Herod, who was king over Israel or king over Judea at that particular time. Uh, You learned, of course, uh, in your New Testament survey uh, that Herod reigned as king. He was given that title by Caesar Augustus. He was the one who reigned as king from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., which by the way, indicates for us that Jesus uh, was not born in the year zero, which we don't even count zero, by the way. You go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., but almost certainly he was born somewhere around 5 or 4 B.C. because Herod dies in 4 B.C., and he is, of course, already here. Some would even push his birth back as early as 6 uh, B.C., and there's nothing that I would say that would argue against that. Uh, Herod uh, the king was a remarkable individual, very brilliant, uh, very gifted, and very, very evil. I mean, he was a man who had a number of wives, and he chose to kill his favorite one. If I was going to kill one of my wives, I'd kill the one I didn't like. But he decided to kill the one. And I wouldn't kill my wife, by the way. Just want to clarify that. Uh, I only have one. That's enough. And she's more than I need. She's everything that I need. So I'm not going down that road. But I mean, goodness gracious, you kill your favorite wife. And then not content with that, he killed two of his sons. And in fact, Caesar Augustus, who did reign, by the way, from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D., playing on a Greek word, said, you know what? It's better to be... Uh, Herod's uh, weas, uh, his pig, than it is to be his weas, his son. And so he recognized that being a part of Herod's family was not a promise or a guarantee of a better future. In fact, it might indeed wind up uh, leading to your very premature and uh, eventual death. Then he tells us there in the text, Matthew does, that these wise men, or it could be translated magi or magi, they came from the east. Now, who were the magi? Almost certainly they were astrologers. Uh, In their day and time, they were deemed to be wise men. They were even viewed to hold scientific credentials. Uh, They came from the east, almost certainly from Babylon or Persia, which then raises a question. Why did they come? Uh, How did they know to come? I mean, this star appears, okay, but how does all of that fit in? And uh, this is my best uh, uh, guess at what I think perhaps transpired. We all remember, of course, that Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, invaded Israel in 605 B.C. He would follow it up again in 597 and a third time in 586, destroying Jerusalem and destroying the temple. And in each of those invasions, he exiled a significant number of persons to Babylon. Well, later at the end of the Babylonian captivity, when the Jews were allowed to return to Israel, not all of them went back. 
And in fact, uh, we know that a large number of them stayed right there. They had become comfortable in Babylon, and so they stayed there. But many of them, no doubt, continued to worship the one true and living God. They continued to study the scriptures, and they knew of a promise in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, which came to be understood messianically, where Moses wrote, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but he is not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, a king, shall rise out of Israel. And so is it possible that these astrologers were men that took religion very seriously? Uh, They had come in contact with Jewish exiles. Uh, They had talked to them from the Jewish scriptures. And even it said, uh, we have a promise in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17 of a Messiah, of a savior, of a king who will arise and there will a star appear that will give us indication that he has come. Evidently, all of that came together for them and so they were convinced that the king of the Jews indeed had come and they had to see him, they had to honor him, they had to worship him. Isn't it interesting? They were not in any way concerned about Herod, the king of Israel. They were not even concerned about Caesar Augustus who reigned as the world emperor in Rome. No, they wanted to see the greatest king. They wanted to see the final king. They wanted to see the king who ends all kings. They were intent on seeing one person only, and that was Jesus. Those who are wise will honor Jesus as king. Number two. Those who are wise will also enjoy him as their Messiah shepherd. Suetonius, a Roman historian, says of this particular period of time, and I quote, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Now, whether the wise men added this to the prophecy of the star in the sky and the promise of the Bible, we cannot be sure. I don't know if that was part of their equation or not. What we do know is they came west to Jerusalem in Judea. They met Herod. They told him why they had come. And the text informs us, unfortunately, that this blessed absolutely nobody. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, heard that the wise men had come looking for the king of the Jews, he was troubled and yes, all of Jerusalem with him. In other words, when you have a mega maniacal ruler like Herod upset, uh, he believed in sharing the pain. Uh, He believes in sharing the trouble. And so he became not happy at the news, but he became agitated at the news. And so what does he do? Well, he brings together his scholars, his uh, religious uh, aristocracy. He assembled, verse 4, all the chief priests uh, and the scribes of the people. He calls it ad hoc meeting of his theological and biblical scholars. And he asked them a very simple question. Where is Christ to be born? Well, here's what's amazing to me in this text. They knew. They knew their Bible better than they lived their Bible. 
which of course is a danger all of us always run the risk of doing. And so they tell him without any hesitation there in verse 5, he'll be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And we even have a text to back it up. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So let's break it down very quickly in what they have said. Number one, where will the Messiah be born? Answer, Bethlehem in Judah. Number two, do people think much of this small town? Not really, but God does. Number three, who will come from there? Answer, a ruler. And Micah even informs us, not here in Matthew's text, but in the prophet, whose coming forth is from of old, even from ancient days. Number four, what will he do? He will shepherd my people Israel. In fact, in Micah chapter 5 and verse 4, the Bible reads, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. In other words, already in the early chapters of the most Jewish of the four gospels, you have an inkling and a promise that this one who is coming is not just the king of Israel. Indeed, he will be the king of the entire world already. The Great Commission text of Matthew chapter 28 is being hinted at early, very, very early, even in the infancy narratives of Matthew's gospel. Yes, he will shepherd Israel, but he will also be a shepherd for the nations as well. And when I read this, my mind immediately went to the last book of the Bible. And it went to Revelation chapter 7 and verse 17, where there the apostle John writes, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne, what? Will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God indeed will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so, yes, we enjoy not only Jesus as king, but we also enjoy him as our Messiah shepherd as well. Number three, those who are wise will rejoice exceedingly at his coming. Verse 7 tips us off to the impure motives of Herod the king. Herod summoned the wise men secretly, secretly. His motives are not pure. Uh, his intentions are evil. And he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So they go behind closed doors to find out when the star appeared. Now, we don't know for certain exactly what the star was. There are a number of different scholarly opinions out there who take the Bible seriously. Some have said it must have been a conjunction of planets. Some have argued that it was an exploding star, a supernova. Some have said it was just an ordinary star that God used in an extraordinary way. Uh, Colin Nickel, who has a PhD from Cambridge last year, came out with a very significant book entitled The Great Christ Comet revealing the true star of Bethlehem. And he argues very persuasively. Now, I'm not persuaded, but he does argue very persuasively in, in a very scholarly fashion that uh, we are on the best grounds of uh, arguing that this particular phenomenon uh, was a comet that God used. Uh, for me, I believe it certainly, and I think you have to agree, it was supernatural. Whether in terms of what God did or when God did it, it is certainly a supernatural phenomenon. And so we don't know for certain what it was, but we do know that God provided it. And we know that it moved the Magi into action to come to Jerusalem. 
So verse eight informs us that having ascertained the place where the king would be born, Herod sent them on to Bethlehem. And again, his treachery knows no end. Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word because I too may come and worship him. A couple of observations before I move on. First of all, the phrase, the child, occurs here in verse eight, again in verse nine, and a third time in verse 11. And I don't wanna read more into the text than I ought, but when I kept seeing the repetition of that phrase, Isaiah chapter nine and verse six came to my mind where the Bible reminds us, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And so even there, I think Matthew is hinting back to the prophecies of Isaiah to inform us as to who this one is. Of course, we learn later tragically in the text, Herod had no desire or intention to worship him, but rather he will later go to Bethlehem and he will murder all the Bethlehem boys two years of age and under. And so his treachery knows no limits as he lies to them and informs them wrongly as to what he would like to do with this child. Well, verse nine informs us that after listening to the king, that is hearing his counsel as to where the Christ would be born, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was, which of course again indicates to me this almost has to be something supernatural. And then verse 10 gives us their response. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, a couple of observations here. First, the chief priest and the scribes, what did they do? Nothing, nothing. They knew where he would be born. They knew that a sign had appeared indicating that he had come. They tell Herod who relays to the Magi, the place Bethlehem, and then what do they do? They go back to business as usual. The coming of the king, no impact on me. The coming of the king, a non-issue for me. The coming of the king, no consequence for me. I mean, I can hardly, I can hardly imagine. It almost takes your breath away to think they know where he's coming from. They know there's a sign that he has come and nothing happens. Nothing happens. In contrast, as we just read in verse nine, the star in my judgment reappears. You say, why would you say that? Because their reaction there in verse 10 has to indicate that it had disappeared for a period of time and now it has come back because Matthew piles up uh, the phrases where he says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. John Piper says, this is a quadruple way of saying that they were happy. Well, I would agree with that. He says, number one, they rejoiced. Number two, they rejoiced with joy. Number three, they rejoiced with great joy. Number four, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We might just say they had mega rejoicing at seeing the star appear once more. And so they who are wise rejoice exceedingly at his coming. Number four, Those who are wise will worship him as Lord and God. Verse 11, and going into the house, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. 
Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, manger scenes of shepherds and wise men gathered together in a stable are beautiful and, and they're cute. Uh, they're just biblically inaccurate, okay? That's what they are. They're biblically inaccurate. First of all, when Matthew records this event, Jesus is older, perhaps his oldest too, but certainly older than an infant who was in a manger. And again, the murder of the Bethlehem boys to an under, according to verse 16, would give us some indication as to that. Secondly, they're not in a stable, but they are in a house. But what matters really is what takes place next. Seeing Jesus with his mother Mary, they did the only appropriate thing in the presence of the one that we have already been tipped off in chapter 1 and verse 23 is Emmanuel with us. They fell down and they worshiped him. In other words, both in action and attitude, they responded in the only proper way we can respond to deity. Now, I want to be fair with the text. It doesn't say here that they ascribe deity to him. In other words, do I think the wise men understood everything about who this baby was? Of course not. Again, you and I should never, ever stop thanking God that we sit in the catbird seat. We know, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. And yet the fact of the matter is what you worship is your God. What is ultimate in your life is what you will worship. And they do nothing less than worship this one that they are before, the one that we have already been told is God with us, the one who will save God's people from their sins. Isn't it interesting? Text doesn't say they stand. The text doesn't say they applaud. The text doesn't say they did the wise men wave. And folks, I'm all for raising hands, clapping, expressing yourself in that kind of a way in worship and adoration. But I will tell you this, I strongly suspect that when we are in the presence of the Lord Jesus, we won't stand and we won't clap. But like the wise men, we will put our face and our knees on the floor because we are in the presence of deity. Those who are wise will worship him as Lord and as God. And then finally, Those who are wise will give him their very best gifts. Verse 11, they opened their treasures and they offered him these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, authentic acts of worship always flow from a sincere heart. They just have to. And so in response to what uh, Paul calls God's inexpressible gift in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 15. The Bible tells us the churches at Macedonia first gave themselves to the Lord. And then they gave their best gifts to the Lord. Well, I think that's exactly what you see here with the Magi. Maybe the Macedonian churches learned it from the Magi. I don't know. But the Bible says opening their treasures, sacrificial gifts... Their best gifts were laid at the feet of this one that they gladly acknowledge as King and Lord and God. Now, the three three gifts uh, is where we also get the tradition, the tradition that there were three wise men. The Bible doesn't tell us how many there were. Later, church tradition even gave the three men names, Balthazar, Gaspar, and Melchior. Again, popular traditions but with no biblical warrant at all. 
But something that does take place here that the church has long argued, I think has more significance and that is this. Uh, These gifts, which echo passages like Psalm 72 and Isaiah chapter 16, verse six, though they provided monetary assistance, after all, they're about to spend a number of years in Egypt. How did they take care of the family? How did they provide for the family? Perhaps God used these gifts in a very, very practical way. But yet also these gifts have something of a prophetic significance as well. You say, how so? Well, the church throughout its history has made the observation that the gold certainly pointed to his royalty as a king. Frankincense certainly pointed to his priestly office because it was used by the priest in temple worship. And myrrh pointed to his death because myrrh was used to embalm bodies. Even William Barclay could say this, and I quote, even at the cradle, the gifts foretold that he was to be the true king the perfect high priest, and in the end, the supreme savior. And so in giving these gifts, the Magi were simply saying to Jesus, you are my real treasure, not these things. You matter more to me than anything I might possess. But you know, as I was working through this text anew, I noticed something in verse 12 that I'd not seen before, and that is this, their very best gift is recorded there. Their very, very best gift was they spared his life. You say, how so? Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. In other words, God spoke to them and they immediately obeyed. And by their obedience, they spared the life of our King. They spared the life of our shepherd Messiah. They spared the life of our Lord and our God. And so let me bring our study to a close this morning by just noting this. When you look at this particular story of the Magi, there are very clearly three different ways that people respond to the Lord Jesus. The first is like Herod the Great. They are confronted with the gospel and they hate him. They hate him. They hate the gospel. They want to have nothing to do with it. They have nothing but loathing in their heart for the idea of a crucified Savior. They will have nothing to do with it. Others, on the other hand, are like the religious aristocracy in this passage, and they're completely indifferent. They don't care. It doesn't matter. I can remember a number of years ago when I was having a conversation with a dear friend who is an atheist who lives in New York in Manhattan, and we were just talking about the things of the Lord. And so I looked at him, and I won't tell you his name, but I asked him, I said, well, I'm just curious. What does your wife think about Jesus? And I will never, ever ever forget what he said. She doesn't think about Jesus. He's never on our radar screen. And the tragedy is there are people all over our nation today and Jesus is not on their radar screen. In some cases, he's not on their radar screen because they have rejected him. But in some cases, he's not on their radar screen because nobody has told them. But then there is a third reaction, is there not? And that is this group of pagan Gentile astrologers who, when hearing of the news of the coming Messiah, rejoiced with great joy. They came to worship. No distance was too far and no gift was too great to convey to this one their love, their worship, and their devotion. So I want you to know that today my prayer for me... And my prayer for you during this particular time of the year 
is well expressed in the song by Felix Mendelssohn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, where he writes in the second verse, Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. O to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. It was true then, and it's true today. Wise men will seek him. I want to invite you to stand as we close in prayer, and Dr. Steve Ladd is going to dismiss us today. Thank you for your faithful attendance during chapel this year. That means a lot to me, and it blesses those who come here and speak. I also know in the days ahead, I pray that you do well as you finish up your exams. I pray that you travel safely uh, as you go to see family and friends over Christmas. And unless you are graduating, uh, this faculty will look forward to seeing you again in January as we continue to prepare to go where it is that this King, this Lord, this wonderful Savior chooses to send us to go. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.